Good morning. It's good to be here and it's good to see all of you. Uh, If you are new to Gateway or you haven't been here in a while, we are doing a series on resurrection encounters. We've been talking about how Jesus died on the cross for our sins and after three days he rose again. In his death, he uh, took the punishment for our sin and in his resurrection, he defeated the power and the grip that that sin had on our lives. After Jesus rose from the dead, he actually appeared to many of his followers. And so we've been following some of the appearances and uh, talking about those specific encounters. So last week, uh, we looked at Jesus's appearance to Mary Magdalene. And this week, we are looking at Jesus's appearance in uh, Luke to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke 24, 13 to 35. And I'm going to read it. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those women, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So we went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Lord, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to read your word and hear from you. And we ask this morning that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes to let us see you and see what you're doing in our hearts in Jesus' name. 
So these two individuals that were walking on this road to Emmaus were intimately acquainted with Jesus and his disciples. We know this because although they weren't named in the 11 apostles, Luke refers to them as two of them, referring back to the apostles. So we can assume that although they weren't part of the 11, they were followers and disciples of Jesus, part of his inner circle. Throughout the passage and their conversion, conversation with Jesus, we get a picture of how these individuals were feeling. Verse 17 said, they stood still looking sad. It goes on to say how they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah who was going to deliver them out of the Roman oppression. But now he was dead. I think we can easily gloss over this passage, or at least I have, because we know what happens, and we know what happened. But let's put ourselves in these guys' shoes for a minute to really understand what this encounter meant to them and to us. These guys are living in a time when Romans were in control. They've heard for years about some Messiah who was supposed to rescue them from their, the oppressive Roman hand, and they think the world has finally found him. And they can't believe that they actually get to be part of this generation who sees the prophecies fulfilled. And not only that, but they are so excited because they, they don't only see the prophecies fulfilled, but they actually get to be intimately acquainted with the man who's going to fulfill them. And so all of their hope is in this one man named Jesus. And in a second, it's shattered as he hangs on a cross dead. They led others to believe that this man was the Messiah and they were wrong. And how many of us know it's really hard to be wrong? They're dealing with other people's disappointment, but they're also dealing with their own. The law won't help them because it's Roman, and then religion won't help them because it's the religious leaders who actually crucified Jesus. So they're standing there alone, confused, angry, emotional, probably ashamed, disappointed, and hopeless. These disciples had these glorious expectations and visions of how it was going to go down, and this was not it. In a way, it's like that unsatisfying end of a movie or a TV series when the main protagonist dies, and you, the movie ends, and you're like, that's it? I really hate those endings. And honestly, that's what I imagine them saying. That's it? That's the best you can do? These disciples were devastated. They had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, but now they call him a prophet, mighty in deeds and words, dead like all the other prophets. In their despair and their hopelessness, they gave up and demoted Jesus from Messiah to prophet. They couldn't believe anymore that he was the Messiah and certainly couldn't believe in his resurrection. I think what gives us a really good picture of how hopeless they were is verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. The reason this is so significant is because we know from the books of John and Mark that the women who saw the empty tomb and the angels were told by the angels to tell the other disciples to head north to Galilee. And it's pretty clear that these disciples did not go north to Galilee. 
in order to meet Jesus. In fact, they didn't even stay in Jerusalem to stay and figure out the mystery of this empty tomb. It says that very day that the women told them to go to Galilee, they picked up and left and went west to Emmaus. They were headed the wrong way. And you know what? I think a lot of us can actually relate to these disciples. At least I can. At some point in our lives, we have been on this same road to Emmaus heading in the wrong direction. Maybe you expected God's promises to come about in a specific way and a specific timing, and they didn't, or they haven't. Or maybe some sort of pain or grief just blindsided you, and you were left reeling like these disciples. You know this road well. It's one of sorrow, confusion, waiting, doubt, frustration, and questions. You know that as a good Christian, you're just supposed to believe and have faith. You know all those nice, pretty lettering signs, just believe. You know that's what you're supposed to do. And you know you're supposed to be on this road to Galilee to meet with Jesus, or at least waiting, hopeful, in Jerusalem to see what God's doing. But let's be honest. There have been times where we just can't muster up the faith And instead, we head to Emmaus, trying to clear our heads, grappling with these new massive doubts and questions about the God. And and these are the questions that we've never had to deal with before. And maybe in our doubt, we've reduced Jesus to something he's not. Maybe you're on this road right now, and maybe you're wondering how you got here. Well, how exactly did these disciples get here on this road to Emmaus heading in the wrong way? When Jesus talks with them, they pour out their hearts to him. They explain why they're so sad, and he responds with, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You see, part of the reason these disciples were thrown into such doubt was because they only focused on part of the prophecies about the Messiah, part of the promises of God. They had heard these prophecies about the Messiah and only selectively remembered parts about his glorification and the salvation and redemption of Israel. But they forgot or even ignored the part about Jesus' suffering. They didn't remember that in order to redeem Israel, the Messiah had to die. He had to go through pain. And this is how they turned the wrong way. They received God's promise, but they put their own expectations on it. And when God didn't do things the way they expected, they were sent into a tizzy of doubt, confusion, and hopelessness. And they gave up. We do this too, and I think this is how we get onto the wrong road, the road to Emmaus. I think we forget, or at least I do, that the Christian walk involves pain. We expect um, fairy tale movie lives with no tension and none of these crazy plot twists. But God never promised us this. 
In fact, God promised us that we would have suffering, that we would have trials, just like the prophecies about Jesus. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And Jesus says in John 16.33, In this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. When we expect painless lives, We get disappointed and disillusioned when the suffering does come, because it does. We're so thrown off that we begin asking, "Uh, is Jesus really who he says he is? Have I been wrong this entire time? And we start walking in the wrong direction. This happened to me last year. By about April Uh, of 2017, I was struggling with some disappointments in my own life, and already I was dealing with some pain that I did not see coming and didn't expect. And then I came home one night to a family talk in which I found out that my sister and brother-in-law, Will and Elise, had been invited to move to England to plant a church, and that they were feeling like God was telling them to do it. This might sound a bit dramatic, but I don't think I'll ever forget sitting on the couch that night. Feeling like the wind had been knocked out of me as this news sunk in. I'm really close to Will and Elise, and... uh, And I count them as some of my best friends. Wow, I'm sorry. And uh, here's the thing. Like, I knew in, you know, knowing them so well, I knew that God had been speaking to them for years about church planning. But the problem was, I kind of always expected that he would send them a little closer to home. (laughs) So, like, somewhere in Canada, you know, a short, quick flight. Not that flights in Canada are that cheap. But, uh, or maybe a few hours drive away, right? Um, And I expected them to be here a little longer. And I expected them to be here when our church moves to West St. Paul. And you know what? I think part of me just expected them to be here forever. And so I was in shock. And you know what? I'm ashamed to admit that I was actually angry. That was my initial response, was anger. I felt the personal loss, but then I also felt the church loss. For those of you who don't know, Will and Elise are pretty heavily involved in Gateway Church. Will's the one who was leading the meeting. Elise was the one who was on the keys there. Will's the youth pastor, also heads up the worship ministry. Elise is a worship uh, leader. She's also an amazing teacher in our Christian school here. They both are part of the apostolic team in Salt and Light. They're a pretty big deal. And so I was feeling my own loss, but then I started thinking about the church. And I was thinking, okay, well, maybe God has great things in store for Will and Elise, but what did that mean for me, my family, and my church? It felt like God was leaving us behind and forgetting about how much we needed them. 
in combination with the other pain and disappointments I was facing, this was the tipping point. And I was done. I thought, nope, no, God, this is not cool. And I started to question God in ways that I've never done before. And my big dilemma became, is God actually good? And I was scared to question that. And I started to question, huh, huh, is his plan good? Because this doesn't feel so good. And I'd known that God is good for my whole life, but I didn't really know it. And so I struggled for quite a while. And I just didn't know what to make of God. And I thought, that's it? That's your good, acceptable, pleasing, perfect plan for us, Lord? Nice. (laughs) Man, uh, I was really on that wrong road to Emmaus. And you know what? People everywhere are on this road dealing with pain. The whole nation is mourning the loss of our boys from Humboldt, Saskatchewan. In India this past week, over 20 school-aged children died in a bus crash because a reckless bus driver took them over the side of a ravine. There's pain everywhere. Even in our own congregation, we have diagnoses. We have losses. We have the pain of waiting. People waiting for spouses. People waiting for children to come back to the Lord. People waiting for husbands and wives to come back to the Lord. We can't escape this pain. And you know what? We actually can't compare it either. However big or small the pain seems to other people's pain, we still feel it. Well, I've learned some things in the past year, and especially some things from this passage. And I have news for you today. If you're on this road, or you've ever been on this road, there's hope. Jesus' promise of suffering ends with, but I have overcome the world. Suffering was a part of the bigger picture of Jesus' glory, and the same is true for us. Wherever there's pain, there's purpose, and there's promise. So I want to spend the rest of the message on that purpose and promise of God, and how these disciples encountered God on their road of pain. So that brings me to the second major part of this story, and one of my favorites, the traveling companion. These disciples were on this road going completely the wrong way, yet Jesus drew near. At this point, Jesus had 11 chosen disciples, and the Bible talks a lot about them. What's interesting, though, is that last week we learned that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene, not one of the 11, before he appeared to the 11. And this week, we're learning that Jesus also appeared to these two disciples, not part of the 11, before he appeared to the chosen 11. So who are these guys, and why are they so special to see the risen Lord before his closest 11 friends? The truth is, we have no idea who these guys are. All we know is that one of them is named Cleopas, and the other is a no-name. We know that they were disciples, but they weren't two of the 11. So why did Jesus pick these no-names? Well, I have a few guesses, and I think the bottom line is that they desperately needed him. They were grappling with questions and doubts, the kind that only come up 
in times of suffering and pain. And I think Jesus uses pain to force us to acknowledge questions deep down inside of us, wrestle with them, and eventually have them answered by him. Pain is part of the process of knowing and understanding Jesus more. I think the other reason why Jesus chose to appear to these guys was because they were walking in the wrong direction. He saw the state of their hearts and he saw where it was leading them and he cared. He was not about to let these guys continue in the wrong direction. How beautiful is that? These two people were on the road of pain, heading the wrong way, and Jesus saw them. Jesus sees us on the road too. He knows our needs, and he knows the directions we're heading. Regardless of whether we think we're no-names or not, Jesus named us, he sees us, and he's drawing near to us. He's not threatened by our doubts or our questions. So what happened when Jesus drew near and walked with these disciples as, his tra- as their traveling companion? Two things. First, I think he gets them to pour out their hearts to him. He asks them what they're talking about, even though he already knows, which I, Jesus does that a lot with us, I think. He already knows what's going on inside of us. We may as well tell him. They, these guys answer by pouring out the story in verses 19 to 24. In doing so, they actually reveal what's really going on deep down inside their hearts. And they reveal to Jesus that deep down, they don't believe he's the Messiah. They believe he's just a prophet. And this shows the extent of their unbelief to Jesus. Jesus, un- Jesus lovingly unlocks their real feelings and enables them to come face to face with their deep down doubts. Again, he's not threatened by their thoughts or questions or feelings. And these moments of pouring out their hearts are so huge. In pain, it is so important to be honest with God and to be honest with ourselves and bring our deep down doubts and questions into the light. I think part of Jesus' purpose in pain is to expose what's going on inside of us, to expose our feelings, our thoughts, our questions, and our doubts. We have to let them surface, and we have to pour them out to God. The second thing Jesus does as their traveling companion is he teaches them how to deal with their pain. Once the disciples finish their story, Jesus does not mince words. And he says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. He's talking about the scriptures and he's saying, why are you so slow to believe everything that was in the scriptures? It's right there. He explains and and then interprets all the scriptures concerning himself. And later, when they're reflecting on this incredible experience, they say, did not our hearts burn while he talked to us on the road and while he opened up the scriptures to us. In explaining the fact that the Messiah had to suffer in order to be glorified, and by interpreting the scriptures, Jesus took these disciples from subjective feelings to objective, living, and authoritative truths about himself and his purposes. His word filled these disciples with hope 
And that is what burned in their hearts. They were taken from downcast, sad, wrong way going individuals to burning ones. And this is the power of the word of God. It renews our minds and it searches our hearts and it changes our entire perspective. As these traveling, as these disciples traveling companion, Jesus taught them how to live in hope during pain, to live in and cling to the word of God, to hear God's voice through it, and to discover his purposes. This is where we find hope in our pain. And in doing all of this, Jesus also teaches them to study and remember all of his promises, not just the selective parts. To not box God up in our tiny little expectations, but to let him work out his promises and purposes. So back to my story. I was on the road to a maze of doubt and confusion. And my picture of God that I had so carefully created for 24 years was not what I had thought. God used areas of pain in my life to bring up questions and doubts that I'd never wrestled with before. Like I said, is God really good and are his plans good? Are his plans for me and Gateway as good as they are for Will and Elise and England? Thinking about and wrestling with these questions was not fun. In fact, I hated it. It was uncomfortable, and it freaked me out a little bit. I thought, am I losing my faith? I wasn't, but it did scare me. And Jesus saw me on my road. Actually, I don't think his eyes were ever off me. And in the next few months, Jesus encountered me in different ways and began to change my perspective. He gave me, actually, a picture of sailboats in a harbor. And uh, Will and Elisa's ships were getting ready uh, to ship out. And myself and others from Gateway were racing around all over these two ships, um, building things and prepping things and repairing things and fixing things, getting them sea ready. And what was so neat, though, was that we were laughing and dancing around as we were doing it, which was the very opposite of how I felt at the time. And through that, Jesus spoke to me about the joy and the goodness in this process. That I could either choose to stand on the dock with my arms folded and a scowl on my face, or I could embrace the sovereignty of God and joyfully support Will and Elise and God's plan. Quickly, Jesus began changing my perspective, thankfully giving me more images and, and speaking to me directly out of his word. And Psalm 16 became my lifeline. I memorized it and I still recite it to this day. Through that psalm and other words, God spoke to me about his immeasurable goodness and beautiful inheritance for each one of us. He showed me that in his presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I knew he was calling Will and Elise out, and I knew that his plan was good for them. And I came to know that if his plan was good for them, his plan had to be good for me. It had to be good for our family, and it had to be good for this church. Because something good in their plan does not 
it can't mean something bad in ours. Because of his word, my heart began to burn again. And despite the fact that we are yet to face the pain of sending them off in the summer, I can now joyfully support them and send them off full of hope, trusting in God's perfect plan. Is it easy? Well, clearly not, because I've already cried, and it's only April. (laughs) But that's why I'm going to keep leaning into Psalm 16 and other scriptures, discovering the purposes of God in my life and in theirs. And you know what? This is actually what Will and Elise have had to do all year and what they are going to have to keep doing. Because this process has been just as painful, if not more, for them than for me and us. In the midst of their pain, doubts, uncertainty, and sheer exhaustion of this process, I have watched them press into their traveling companion this year and lean on scriptures and words that he's given them. The way in which you two have walked has not only encouraged me to do the same, but it's proven to me that Jesus' word And Jesus' company is the only thing that fills us with hope. It's the only thing that gives us life when we are facing pain, doubts, and uncertainty. So, we've seen the wrong way detour. And we've seen this beautiful encounter with the traveling companion. So the last thing I want to talk about on this road is the U-turn. The U-turn in this story begins when, when the disciples strongly urged Jesus to stay with them that evening. And what's funny is Jesus pretends he's going further than Emmaus. It literally says he pretended. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> and I think he did this um, to give the disciples a choice of whether they wanted to press in or not. Jesus doesn't force his presence on any of us. And he doesn't force his teaching on any of us. He gives us the choice. Do we want to keep encountering him? Do we want to keep his company? And then here's the climax. The disciples plead with him to stay, and Jesus happily accepts their invite. What's so neat here, though, is that typically a guest would just sit down and enjoy the meal, right? But Jesus takes on the role of host and takes the bread to break it. And in this symbolic moment of the Last Supper and the feeding of the 5,000, the Spirit of God opens the disciples' eyes to recognize Jesus. God kept them from recognizing Jesus at the very beginning because they had to learn how to wrestle with doubt and find hope in Scripture. They had to learn how to have spiritual eyes without seeing the physical fulfillment of the promise yet. And now he opens their eyes to see the fulfillment of that promise. And I think there's two other really important things here. The first is Jesus or these disciples chose to press into Jesus. 
They could have let him keep going, satisfied with the hope and understanding they'd gotten from, from Scripture. And that was good. But they chose to press in and encounter Jesus. The result? Jesus revealed himself to them and let them see the fulfillment, the physical fulfillment of the promise. How much more would we see if we chose to keep God's company? The second thing is that the Spirit is the one, the Holy Spirit is the one who opened their eyes. Their eyes were opened, it says. They didn't do it themselves. God's scripture gives us hope and faith, but God's Spirit opens our eyes to live in that hope and faith. And this, this line, and their eyes were opened, is actually a really neat reference back to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve disobeyed and ate the forbidden fruit, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Adam's, Adam and Eve's eyes were opened to their death, but because of Jesus' death and resurrection, these disciples' eyes were opened to his life. And this represents the life that we can now have with Jesus. And we're going to talk about that a little later and give you an opportunity if, to, to surrender your life to Jesus if you, don't, if you haven't already. No matter how hard we try, even how hard we press into Scripture, we cannot open our own eyes to see God and see what he's doing. Yeah, we get some hope, but ultimately we need the Holy Spirit to fill us and open our eyes and hearts. I think it's also really important and beautiful to note here that their eyes were opened at the moment Jesus blessed the bread and broke it. So in communion, bread represents, it's symbolic of Jesus' broken body on the cross, right? These disciples had refused to acknowledge that Jesus had to suffer. But it was in the very symbol of his suffering that their eyes were opened. And they saw the fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Jesus' suffering was their means of sight. In pain, there is purpose and promise. Then it says that Jesus vanished. And they remarked on how their hearts had burned while, they, while he opened up the scriptures. And then it says, And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Think about that. The seven-mile road that they had literally just spent all day walking with Jesus, they turned around the same hour and walked it right back to Jerusalem. Emmaus held nothing for them anymore. And these are not the same downcast, sad men who believed in Jesus as a prophet. One encounter with Jesus, his Holy Spirit, and the word of God, and they were changed. They did a complete U-turn and went right back at night, no less, to tell the others the good news. And I think this partly says that Jesus not only saw these disciples on the road and saw their need, he actually saw their potential. And he saw their potential to be witnesses 
to his 11 apostles and the others around them. They started heading the wrong way, but encountered a traveling companion who gave them purpose and sight. One touch from Jesus, and they joyfully did a complete U-turn. You know, not all of our pain has a glorious resurrection that reverses the physical loss entirely. But in all pain, we can experience the hope and fulfillment of all the promises that God has for us. It's still going to be hard not having Will and Elise here for all of us. And I don't know how God is going to fulfill all of his promises. What I do know, though, is that he has promised us joy and pleasure in his will and presence. And because he has given me a word to hold on to, and he has opened my eyes, he's enabled me to do a U-turn. And he's filled me with joy and hope as I work on these ships. And I believe that as I and as we keep on pressing into Jesus and into his word, we will keep on encountering him. And he is going to give us greater sight to see his fulfilled promises. Maybe you're here or uh, you're listening on the internet and you're realizing that you are walking the wrong way right now. You've never given your life over to Jesus, or maybe you did, but you started going the wrong way. Jesus is drawing near to you today, and he's wanting you. He's inviting you to make a U-turn. He's inviting you to turn around and, and leave the sadness and the pain and walk into hope and peace and joy in him. But you have to humbly accept the invitation. And you can do that today through a simple prayer that I would actually love to pray with you right now. So if that's you, you can pray along with me. And uh, the whole congregation is going to pray along and repeat after me because this is something that is meaningful even if we've been walking with the Lord for years. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Messiah. I thank you that you want to be my traveling companion. I admit I'm on the wrong way. And I ask that you would forgive me for my sin. I believe that you are the Messiah, the only way. And I ask that you would walk with me as my traveling companion for all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you did that for the first time today, that's awesome. And welcome to the family. And if you did that after walking away from the Lord, welcome back. We all have a choice, just like these disciples. On your road of pain, will you choose to encounter Jesus? Will you let him walk alongside of you as your traveling companion, pouring your heart out to him? Will you press in to encounter him just a little more? 
Will you value all parts of his word, not just the fun, happy, glorious bits? Will you allow him to open up your eyes and send you in a U-turn? Jesus sees you on your road. He sees your needs, but he also sees your potential. He's drawing near to you this morning. He's drawing near to me, and he's drawing near to us together. The question is, how are we going to respond?